Well, here we are, folks. We have arrived at Chapter 9, the final chapter in Part 1 of The Baroness. Normally, I begin these episodes with an anecdote, some connection to the themes permeating the story. But I'm changing it up a bit for this intro. I'm recording this at the beginning of April, and there's a ton on my plate right now. As I've mentioned before, I'm an English professor. I teach full-time. The spring semester is coming to a close in a few weeks, and that will be taking up a good amount of my time. I also work for the Scared to Death podcast, editing the fan stories for the annual collection of true horror stories. On top of those two jobs, my wife and I are finally beginning the process of moving to Costa Rica. Our house is going on the market today. Yes, we did just buy this house. But this was because our original plan to relocate to Central America last year was put on hold because of COVID restrictions and the arduous process of getting our two abracadabradors down to the equator. Now that things are opening up again, we can actually make our dream a reality. Part of this is packing up the few essentials, filling out and submitting all the paperwork, and selling nearly everything we own, including our stupidly excessive vinyl record collection. Speaking of which... If there are any vinyl collectors listening and have been looking for that certain first pressing or record store day re-release, get in touch. We might actually have what you're looking for. So what does this long-winded ramble amount to? The show is taking a mid-season break. A sort of short summer vacation. With everything going on right now, I can't give the Baroness the attention I think it deserves. This isn't forever, and the show will return just as soon as I can get some of these other items off my honeydew list. So please, stick with me. If you're listening to these episodes as they come out, thank you so much for getting on board and setting sail with me. I'll be back soon. If you've just discovered the show and are listening to this months from now, once we have returned from the break, ignore everything I just said and enjoy Chapter 9. Let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 9 The state of Wisconsin, especially in brutal winter months, felt like living on the moon. Not known for its mountain ranges, the area which many of his friends from other parts of the U.S. called Lower Canada was redundant. One blank, snow-covered field after another. This isn't to say that Wisconsin doesn't have its fair share of beauty. But when Austin Holt chanced a look at the barren farms from his upstairs bedroom window in January or February, his seasonal depression and the monotonous landscape coalesced into the stomach-dropping crush of being completely alone. Now, on the Lido deck, standing at the starboard railing, staring at the last wisps of the sun dipping into the sea, Austin felt the same sensation. On a cruise, where the entire experience was to encourage passengers to relax, to break free of routine and depression, this was not how he was supposed to feel. Throughout the Baroness, television monitors listed a variety of information. From events happening right then or coming up, birthday or anniversary announcements, advertisements for the plethora of bars and restaurants, and more. In the bottom right-hand corner of the screen was a real-time map, a much-scaled-down avatar of the Baroness in its center, with a cartoonish dotted red line 
trailing behind for cruisers to track the progress of the voyage. This channel was also available in the staterooms. Before returning to the Lido deck, Austin saw on his screen that the Baroness was a tiny speck in a wall of blue. Sometime between the ill-fated trivia game and the subsequent conversation with Chad and Teresa after, and now, their ship had left the smattering of Caribbean islands behind and were truly out to sea. Alone. Austin was sure a whole host of other marine vessels, maybe even other cruise ships, were out there, but the horizon was unbroken and strangely calm. Like wintry Wisconsin, or the cratered face of the moon, it felt alien. And Austin, hiding just out of view from the most of the milling passengers up top, smoking a secret cigarette, wished he were in either of those two places, rather than aboard the Baroness. After the trivia game ended, Table 7, having won, and received their gift certificate with a chosen member, who snatched it from Donnie Fredericks as if reaching into a hot flame, Austin and Marie split from Chad and Teresa at their respective staterooms to change into swimwear. They reconvened at the pool furthest from the tiki bar. Austin then excused himself, citing the need for a bathroom, bummed a cigarette from a couple tossing theirs over the side. He didn't want to go back. He didn't want to talk about it. Getting it out into the open would make the whole experience real. Damn, they'd only been on board for 24 hours, and he surely wasn't feeling the way a vacationer should. Austin flicked his cigarette into the vast, peaceful sea, and with reluctance went back to join his wife by the pool. At first, the two couples sat in relative silence, letting the sun soak into their skin and the alcohol into their bloodstreams. It was as if no one in the group wanted to throw out that first rock. It was, of course, his wife, Marie, who did it. Anyone feel super awkward with that game? she asked. Teresa, who'd been lying back on a lounge chair, sat up and pulled down her sunglasses. Just what were some of those questions? The Titanic? Missing people? Bad form, her husband, Chad, said. And what about him knowing all that about you, Chad? Teresa said. The way she spoke the word him was with a sort of anti-reverence, the kind reserved for dictators or religious fanatics or Voldemort. The references to your book, Austin added, touching his wife's arm. The lipstick, Teresa echoed. How do they know who you are? Do they know something about all of us? From there, the group touched on all the various experiences they'd had. The sinking feeling the women had when Donnie Frederick's eyes were on them. How other cruisers seemed to feel the same way about him. How the collective excitement from over 400 passengers was tapering off. The brunch bros being the exception. But even they felt off. Like they were planned. And then there was Laszlo. They discussed the erratic behavior at dinner during the trivia game. The clothing, or lack thereof. Austin relayed the conversation he'd had with Laszlo on the mezzanine level. I didn't tell you this before, Chad said to his wife. I guess I didn't know how. What? Teresa asked. To the group, Chad painted a picture of his first meeting with Laszlo and Sophia. The fake anger and invitation... Austin, along with Marie and Teresa, felt momentary solace getting some backstory about those damn gummy bears. Austin said, That's why he calls you Iceman. 
feeling more confident, hearing everyone else's stories. Austin then launched into his own, telling the group about the darkened arcade and the chanting group, about Donnie appearing to lead the other employees in what felt like a religious ceremony, about being afraid of getting caught. As much as it embarrassed him, even then, Austin told the others about the stuffed elephant, how its presence felt menacing, pointed. Why didn't they say anything to you? Murray asked, grabbing Austin's hand from her forearm and clutching it tight. It's like they're playing some kind of game, a kid's game, Chad said. As ridiculous as it sounds, it felt like a threat, Austin said. And he thought, did I really just say that a stuffed circus elephant was a threat? But the group didn't latch on to the inanity of that. I think it was, Teresa said. But why? What purpose? What are these people hiding? What don't they want us to know? The sum of their conversation was simple. Something was wrong. There were too many awkward, inappropriate experiences to be a matter of coincidence. Of bad timing. And the big problem was, nothing had actually happened yet. These were all, again, a series of weird experiences. Nothing had been done to them. They weren't being attacked or harassed. In a way, the group agreed that so far, it felt like there was a Project Mayhem sort of group operating behind the scenes. But for what? To fuck with them? Or, if given enough little experiences, maybe they were inoculating the passengers, desensitizing or acclimating the herd with tiny pieces before the bigger picture was revealed. But what could they do? This wasn't a city bus or a taxi. They couldn't just tell the captain to pull over and let them off. They were in the middle of the Atlantic. And even that was another issue. They hadn't even seen the captain. Was he in on it? Was the entire crew? They were spiraling, and the booze wasn't helping. It was Austin who suggested they pump the brakes, not let their imaginations run off into uncharted depths. They were four grown-ups, right? They had children and grandchildren and careers. He was a college professor. Chad was a doctor. They should be trying to find a rational explanation for the whole thing. He said, maybe we're just feeding off of one another. Maybe, Marie repeated. Some sort of folie a deux, Austin said, or folie a um, quattro? How do you say four in French? You mean like a collective insanity? Chad asked. We aren't insane, Teresa said. There's definitely something going on. Mostly for himself, and maybe to quash the continually rising feelings of unease, Austin felt himself shift into logic mode. Well, we can't prove that. I mean, not yet. We're on top of a cruise ship. We've got drinks, sun, the pool. Isn't this what the brochures promised? I guess it is, Teresa said. Why don't we just take a breath, Chad said. Maybe a nap. We can meet again for a drink before dinner, Austin said. Regroup. There was a palpable sense of relief. The group had some sort of a plan. And so they collected their plastic cups and towels, then disappeared behind the doors of their staterooms. Austin had no idea if their new friends, Chad and Teresa, got any rest, any reprieve. But Austin couldn't sleep, and neither could Marie. 
Instead, they made love. That was twice in two days. More than usual. It was like they were pumping pheromones through the air ducts. No, it was a distraction. A mind eraser. Like sleep. Soon after, they cleaned up, got into more formal dining attire, and went down to the mezzanine level. A line of cruisers were filing into the doors, with a noticeable reduction in the energy and enthusiasm from the night before. Chad and Teresa were waiting outside the doors, talking to the two others from Table 9, the critic and the librarian. It was like the four of them didn't want to go into the dining room, like they were scared to. Seeing their body language, Austin wanted to turn around, get back to his stateroom and pull the covers over his head like he was a kid again, but Marie was pulling him forward by their interlocked fingers. Teresa took two steps toward them and said, You have to hear this. What? Marie asked. Carolyn, tell the Holtz what you saw last night. Something about Teresa's voice, the way her own joyful tone had been flushed away, made Austin wince. He didn't want to know. This was proof they didn't have earlier. He was sure of it. Don't tell me, he thought. I don't want to hear it. Let's just go in and have dinner. Talk about the snow or politics or the Green Bay fucking Packers. Anything other than what was wrong with the people aboard the Baroness. But the librarian looked like she needed to tell more people. To make sense of her own experience on the ship thus far. Greg the critic stood beside her, an arm around her waist. They'd gotten close, fast. Austin understood. If he wasn't holding his wife's hand, he felt like one or both of them might float away with their own thoughts. Last night, when I went to the bathroom, outside the nightclub, I saw... What? Austin asked. Now that she'd begun, he just wanted her to hurry up and get it over with. What did you see? I saw... Carolyn said. Beside her, Greg tensed as did Chad and Teresa. All four were staring through Austin Marie, beyond them. What? Austin thought. God damn it, what did you see? Carolyn lifted her arm and pointed. Austin Marie turned, slowly, torn between desperately wanting to know what Carolyn was signaling to, what their table mates were now fixated on, and wanting to cower from it. Laszlo was storming down the hallway toward them, Marie was squeezing Austin's hand hard enough he thought something might snap. Normally, Laszlo's appearance was enough to make Austin brace himself, but there was much more to it this time. Now, even from 20 yards away, they could see the blood. As he bridged the gap between them, Austin saw the sanguine concentration on his hands and chest. His mesh shirt was torn. He wasn't wearing pants. The man was crying. Zofia. Laszlo said. She's gone. Thanks for listening to this chapter of The Ghost Modernist. Again, I will be back when life settles down a bit. Please keep following me on Instagram, at The Ghost Modernist, for updates about the show, pictures of our adventures and missteps, and maybe some more dog posts. Those are always fun. If you haven't yet, please give the show a review. Throw a few words on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This really helps the show out. Thanks, everyone, and I'll be back soon.
The music and theme song for today's episode of The Ghost Modernist was provided by Atrium Carcheri. As always, remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?